Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. From WDEV in Waterbury, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint, the live radio show where we talk to everyone building the new Vermont and protecting the old one. I'm Kevin Ellis at the mic where we take you behind the headlines. We're going to get right to it this morning because we have a packed show. So let's start right off. S5, the Affordable Heat Act. This is the signature Democratic climate change bill in the Vermont legislature. And here to discuss it with us just for a few minutes is Ben Edgerly Walsh from the Vermont Public Interest Research Group. I would point out that we had Myers Mermel from the Ethan Allen Institute on last week uh, in which he uh, went through point by point why this is uh, a bad bill because it will uh, raise costs on Vermonters. So we wanted to have Ben on to give us the other side. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so let's set the table. S-5, the Affordable Heat Act, has passed the Senate Natural Resources Committee. It is in, it has passed the Senate Appropriations Committee and it's on its way to the Senate floor, right? That's right. Uh, we expect to vote later this week. What would this bill do? So essentially the Affordable Heat Act takes a successful idea uh, that's uh, been around for years in the electric sector, uh, requiring Vermont's electric utilities to help Vermonters reduce their fossil fuel use and their energy bills by providing incentives. Um, and in that case, in the heating and transportation sector, so if you've seen you know, incentive for a newer used electric vehicle out there or a heat pump or you know, other appliances like that, um, you know, that's uh, those are being offered by electric utilities because they're required to help their customers reduce fossil fuel use. This essentially takes that concept, applies it to uh, fossil fuel companies that are bringing fossil fuels into Vermont in the thermal sector, the, the heating sector, uh, and says, you know, fossil fuel companies, just like our electric utilities, are part of the solution and are providing incentive to, incentives to Vermonters. You also have to be part of the solution to cutting climate pollution, cutting Vermonters' energy bills, and provide incentives for Vermonters to you know, do things like weatherize their home or install a, a heat pump to cut their bills that way. So, Ben, uh, let's take a real-world example. So someone uh, lives in central Vermont, and they this bill passes, and they want to weatherize their home better, uh, buy a heat pump, buy an electric car, or any of those things. Uh, who do they call? So uh, the, I want to stress the bill is about, you know, two and assuming it does pass, would be implemented in about two and a half years. So there, uh, you know, a lot of the um, you know, implementation, exactly who the specific um, entities, uh, you know, doing a lot of the work, um, that's, you know, still to be figured out. But on the ground, it's not really going to be that different um, for Vermonters right now in terms of who you'd pick up the phone and call, you know, a contractor that offers weatherization services or, you know, installs heat pumps or, you know, efficient water heaters. Those same contractors will be doing work in a couple of years. They'll just have, um, you know, more incentives they're able to offer because of this program. Um, and, you know, it, it also has in the bill, uh, you know, big role to play for um, an entity that 
essentially would be something like Efficiency Vermont for the thermal sector. It could be Efficiency Vermont, could be a different company, but there will be a sort of one-stop shop option for Vermonters once this has been implemented, um, where they can, you know, pick up the phone, call that sort of Efficiency Vermont-like entity and say, sort of, here's my situation, what are my options, and be walked through the incentives um, and technologies that are available to them. And, uh, you know, I gotta say, I'm, <clears throat> it's, it's, on one side, it's, in, it has been incredibly frustrating how climate change, how, how long it's taken for it to be front and center of, of the United States political agenda. On the other hand, it seems fairly, fairly quick that Vermont is now passing or could pass major legislation that, that drives Vermonters off of oil and gas and into renewable energy. It just seems a little that we've, you know, we're, we're moving, right? We finally are at long last. I mean, Vermont's been nibbling around the edges of helping right. Vermonters reduce their energy bills and climate pollution for a while. Um, you know, I would say, you know, this bill is, is anything but quick. Um, you know, again, it would be two and a half years before anything under this program would be implemented. Um, and then the other thing that is important to understand is ideas like this um, or, or other proposals that would sort of get at similar goals have been around for you know decades. I was working on um, you know a proposal back in 2000, you know, a decade ago, a little bit more than a decade ago, that would have provided substantial additional incentives for you know weatherization and um, similar technologies. And and I actually think that that point that you made about you know we haven't really acted yet on the climate crisis is an important one, not just from a climate standpoint, though that's certainly um, really you know critical. Actually, finally re- finally reducing climate pollution, but from an affordability standpoint, if we had done something like this five years ago or ten years ago, tens of thousands of Vermont families would have been insulated from the enormous price spikes in oil and propane that we've seen over the last couple of years, we would just be in a much better place as a state to, you know, weather the periodic price increases that have happened really consistently over the years on fossil fuels. When you're looking at, you know, helping Vermonters move to uh, lower carbon, more affordable options like, uh, you know, super efficient electric heating options, Electricity doesn't have that, those same kind of wild swings. So it just makes it easier for Vermonters to plan their budget. And frankly, you know, they'll have to be shelling out less money to, you know, buy imported fossil fuels. So, so uh, when the Ethan Allen Institute was on last week, their main, Mr. Mermel's uh, main objection was that this bill would raise prices of heating for Poor people. So let's answer. Can you answer that one? Will this save money for people either in the short run or the long run? Yeah, it it, it absolutely will. I mean, analyses have been done and there's going to be a lot more analysis of this done before it ever actually goes into effect. Um, But, you know, we're looking at literally billions of dollars in savings over time coming to Vermonters. You know, will there potentially be an effect on the price of fossil fuels, yes, you know, that is a reality of, you know, taking action. There is an investment that's required. I've seen some of their numbers. They're wildly inflated. Um, And then the interesting thing that is 
we're, we're hearing two things simultaneously. One, this is going to be so expensive we can't possibly afford it. And two, we're also hearing from some of the same critics well, we also we you know have put so much money into this in recent years. The federal government just passed the Inflation Reduction Act, and that maybe that just takes care of it. Like we won't have to worry about it because there's so uh, many other incentives out there. So why do this at all? And you know those two things can't be true at the same time. If if that's true, then this program essentially will be at no cost, and it'll just make sure that we hit our numbers um, and and reduce pollution. And I also want to make clear one thing on the Inflation Reduction Act. So that's the bill that was passed last August and but in Congress provided big new incentives for a whole host of clean technologies. Um, and that law only has those incentives in place for about 10 years. That right. clock is already ticking. Right. And every year we wait, we're talking about tens of millions of dollars that Vermonters are not able to leverage because we have not taking action in Vermont to make this kind of work easier. And that's just an enormous missed opportunity. It, it is. Uh, <laughs> this is something that we argue about every day in our society, which is, I mean, yeah, the price of fossil fuels going to go up. Um, that's sort of the point is <laughs> government all the time. We, as the government, uh, raises prices on stuff we don't want, cigarettes, beer, booze, candy, uh, gas in order to drive behavior into more uh, cleaner, safer, cheaper alternatives. And uh, it, I don't know, it, some people think that's a dirty phrase to utter, but we do it every day. That is true, although I, I really want to make clear that that's, you know, this program is specifically designed to have the smallest possible uh, cost to Vermonters in order while still hitting the climate pollution requirements that we have while still helping Vermonters reduce their their fossil fuel use and their energy bills. You know, you could design a program designed to do exactly what you describe, but this is, you know, really a program designed around we have specific requirements in law that we're trying to hit. How do we hit them as cheaply and as flexibly as possible? Um, and really what this program is designed to do is to create direction and a blueprint for the fossil fuel companies bringing these you know, fuels into Vermont to say, you've got to be part of the solution. This is the target you need to hit. You figure it out. You figure out you know, what kind of incentives Vermonters need to actually make this transition happen. And then that's what you do need to provide. Not more. Don't raise prices more than you absolutely have to. Um, and that you know, really is why we're so supportive of this both from a climate standpoint and from a consumer protection standpoint, because it does put those, uh, you know, it is going to put those incentives out there. And I want to actually mention one other thing. You mentioned low and moderate income Vermonters, and I'm really glad you did, because that is central to why we support this bill. And there's actually a really important provision, stronger than any I've seen uh, in climate legislation in Vermont in my, you know, 10, 15 years working on it, that requires 60 percent of the benefit of this program in the residential sector to go to low and moderate income Vermonters. And so that's going to mean that really big incentives go to those Vermonters so that they actually can do this, even if they don't have, you know, the cash in their own bank account, they're going to have options to weatherize their homes to reduce their, uh, you know, their energy bills in other ways. S5, the Affordable Heat Act, it's going to be on the Senate floor sometime this week. I suspect that senators will be getting calls and emails from people on both sides. Ben Edgerly-Walsh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
We're going to take a break, and we're coming right back with the one and only mayor of Burlington, Moreau Weinberger. We're going to be talking about ballot items on the town meeting day ballot in Burlington, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're back. Uh, next Tuesday is town meeting day, and in the Queen City of Burlington, there are a bunch of ballot items Redistricting and polling locations, rank choice voting, carbon impact fees, all resident voting, and the biggie, a community control board for the police department. All of those are tough ones, and uh, the mayor of Burlington, Moreau Weinberger, is here to discuss them all. Welcome, Mr. Mayor. Gavin, it's great to be with you. Can you hear me all right? Uh, yeah, we can hear you great. Thanks for joining us. Um that's a long list. That's a lot of uh, high-impact stuff. Do uh, you want to start with the uh, the tough one or the easy ones? <laughs> <laughs> it is a, it is a full town meeting day for Burlington voters for sure. We uh, it's often that way here. You know, we uh, we 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 have a very active community and we have lots of debates and and it often uh, is reflected with a, a full town meeting day ballot. Um, yeah, let's uh, let's dive right in on, on the community control board. I, I do think it is uh, most a, a very meaningful one, and one that there's a major community conversation going on about. I've taken a very clear position on it. This is essentially the same proposal that I vetoed in the fall of 2020 or December 2020, and I my my thinking then was that. We need police accountability. That's a very important part of, of 21st century policing and building trust with the community. But this control board is not the right way to achieve it. It's got many significant flaws with it, and we are far better served by continuing to invest in our existing police accountability system, which we have really strengthened dramatically uh, since since 2016 when we recognized that it, it really was uh, not uh, not as robust a process as we needed. You, so, have, you, really you have an existing police commission right now of volunteers. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. We, we've for decades had a police commission. Since 2016, we've increasingly been giving the commission additional authority uh, get additional mandate. They now review every single citizen complaint that comes into the police department or comes into the city. It doesn't have to go through the police department, goes to the police commission for them to review. They also review every use of force incident. Um, in the last couple of years, we've given them substantial budget authority to hire uh, uh, what we call a conflict council, essentially their own attorney that is still you know, there's still a department of the city, so they, uh, you know, there, there needs to be sort of co- some coordination with the city attorney's office. But they've been given uh, quite a bit of uh, independence there, um, and they've been using it. You know, not not it's not been easy. I've not always been in full agreement with how this commission is pursuing things, but we've been figuring it out, and we've been making that system better. And uh, from my perspective, it makes a lot more sense to continue to refine that and formalize and strengthen and clarify that existing system as opposed to throwing that out and starting from scratch with a brand new board, which is what this charter change would do. Uh, do and, and how does the community feel about 
this proposal at the moment. Uh, you know, the folks, I'm thinking of the Howard Center. I'm, I'm thinking of Spectrum. Yeah, yeah. No, if you, yeah, well, I mean, we'll have a – it is always a little bit of a mystery leading up to town meeting day exactly where the community is. We'll have a much clearer sense next next week. But um, it has been very significant that a number of community organizations have come forward and expressed real concern about this proposal. And as you said, we the, the University of Vermont Medical Center – the Howard Center, the Lake Champlain Chamber of Commerce, uh, the Burlington Business Association, numerous uh, downtown stakeholders have have come out and you know basically supported my position. Said obviously police accountability is important, but this is not the way to achieve it. And what you really see is that the organizations that rely on the Burlington Police, that work with the Burlington Police know that this uh, we we are in a challenging moment here. We have seen our police department reduced by about 40% in terms of the number of officers we have. We have a little bit of momentum right now in rebuilding that department. We just sent six cadets off to the academy a few weeks ago, which is the biggest class we've had in a long time. And so we have the, these sort of fragile signs of important rebuilding of the department. And this proposal does threaten it because – Basically, the issue is because of the way this proposal has been written, it has it is it is unique in the country. It is unique in that it has removed virtually all of the or many of at least the protections that other similar disciplinary boards in the country have to ensure fairness to officers. It has stripped away basic due process um aspects like the fact, you know, every other employee of the city of Burlington, if they don't like the disciplinary decision that's made on them, they have an appeal right. This strips away that appeal right and says, if you're not happy with this, you got to go to superior court. It uh, removes the ability to grieve um, suspensions of up to two weeks. It, uh, it has no political accountability for the people serving on this board. They're not appointed by the mayor and the city council, the elected officials. They're set up through this very complicated process and there's no recall provision. It, you know, it, it, it really, um, it demonstrates there, there's just no commitment to procedural justice in the way this p- proposal was written. And that's what officers look at when they're trying to determine whether they're going to be treated fairly in what can be, you know, very important moments in, in their career if there's if something they've done is under review. And I, there, it, this already, we've had, I've seen some indication we've lost a recruit or so in recent weeks because of concern over this. And if this actually were to become our system, I think it would completely undercut our efforts to rebuild the department. So I, it's, I yes, gotta, you have a, go ahead. I, I got to make a political comment here. And that is, I think you find yourself in the middle of, as do mayors all over the country, a very difficult and complex uh, conversation about the role of the police in the society uh, and as usual in America, where you know, if you if you uh, on one side uh, you're you're weak on crime, uh, and and that you support the criminals and you don't support the police, and on the other side you are a right wing conservative who uh, supports the police and doesn't care about the people who are victims of police mistreatment, and it just seems to me that that conversation needs to be more nuanced. Um, and, and and just sort of attacked at a deeper level. 
because it's not either or. Is that do I does that resonate with you at all? It totally does, Kevin. You're and it's it's really where I've always been on this issue. This is not a question of public safety or police accountability. It's not a question of public safety or racial justice. You know, we need both. We clearly need both. The 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 police play an essential role in our society. Anyone who doubted that, you know, just you know, look at what happened with January 6th. Look at what has happened in cities across the country um, as we've been struggling with these questions over the last couple of years. We've seen a significant increase in crime. There's just no doubt that the police play an important role in uh, holding criminals accountable, in, in deterring crime. I have no patience, really, for the arguments that suggest otherwise. I think they're just fantasy arguments. The uh, And at the same time, to do policing right, we need to hold ourselves to the principles laid out by President Obama and his landmark 21st century policing report that came out in 2015, just as I was in the process of hiring my, you know, the first police chief that I didn't inherit. And, and it was really a very formative document for me, clarifying to me what we needed, the change that we needed in American policing. And, you know, the Burlington Police Department has been on the forefront of those reforms, certainly since that time. And I think there's a strong argument that that's it's been a very progressive very professional police department for decades and uh that's clearly the way and um i we uh i hope in the wake of this big community discussion about the control board there uh will be greater awareness and appreciation of how fortunate we are to have such a strong police department i mean you look at what they've just done in recent weeks solving this 50 year old cold case with incredible uh, incredible good police work, um, responding to this mental health incident, hostage incident in Milton over the weekend where they were able to get a four-year-old boy released uh, without needing to use force and everyone was kept safe. We have a very strong police department that is very committed to 21st century policing principles, and we, got it. We, we are at risk of wrecking that if we keep getting these decisions wrong. I hope the community is going to get it right next week. And what, uh, which, which ballot, which number question is that on the ballot next week? This is ballot question number seven. Okay. So uh, I am voting no on ballot question number seven, and I'm, I'm urging others to vote no as well. Uh, is this is it is it too simplistic to say that this is new members of the, the sort of next generation of the city council? Uh, pushing this versus, uh, I, I hesitate to say you are the old guard, but, uh, you know, is, is this a breakdown that way? Sort of new city council members, new, new younger citizens of Burlington pushing this versus, uh, people who've been around longer and the business community? So, you know, this, uh, this came through a, citizen petition process, which is an important part of our democracy and, and people have the right to do. And I, I don't think that they should be, uh, you know, anyone who clearly a significant amount of energy from a, a number of people went into to getting the more than, I think, 1,600 signatures that were necessary to put this on the ballot. And, and you know, I, I don't want to 
criticize people for exercising their their democratic rights. Sure. I I have been concerned to see progressive members of the city council supporting this initiative and actually being out there helping to secure signatures from it. The reason that surprised me is because I thought we had a new consensus uh, for over a year that that we needed to rebuild the, the department, the full council since the fall of 21 has voted to re to lift the officer headcount, the authorized cap of number of officers. They restored that. Uh, Let's take a, a break. Uh, uh, Mr. Mayor, we got to take a break. I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Uh, we'll come back and continue this conversation right after the break. You're listening to WDEV. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos, including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. We're back uh, with the Mayor Burlington, Moreau Weinberger. I'm Kevin Ellis on Vermont uh, Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm, Mr. Mayor, I'm so sorry I had to interrupt. Uh, you were in the middle of talking about uh, the sort of the political calculation of this police commission proposal that's on the ballot for next week on town meeting day. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. I, I just, we had, I do think it's important to, to kind of unpack the whole history of how we got here. There was this very problematic vote from my perspective in the, in the summer of 2020, um, that, uh, out of nowhere, um, uh, uh, conceived of and, and successfully for a while at least implemented this idea that we should cut the Burlington Police Department by 30%. Um, just a few years earlier, we had had a had unanimous vote backed by progressives, Democrats, and Republicans to expand the size of the police department. Uh, you know, good policing requires re- requires, like many things, it's labor intensive. It requires uh, more resources, not less. So I was quite surprised and adamantly opposed to this proposal in June of 2020 to reduce the size of the police department. It was passed over my objection and it was done in a way that it was basically impossible to veto it. I figured I would just stick with it and I'd get it reversed and I eventually did, but it took until the fall of uh, 2021 for that to happen. In the meantime, we saw a precipitous drop in our number of officers. The council voted unanimously, not unanimously, but decisively in the fall of 21 to raise the cap again and and move towards uh, rebuilding. They actually funded the first of our multiple now very expensive rebuilding plans. It was a very costly mistake. And since then, we had a number of unanimous votes from the council where everyone seemed to agree um, we needed needed to reverse this. We needed to rebuild the department. So I was quite surprised then to see after a year of that consensus, uh, progressive city councilors now um, uh, really advocating for and helping to secure the signatures, advocating for actively holding press conferences in favor of this very flawed community control board idea. They even basically acknowledge, Kevin, that there are serious flaws in it, but they say, you know, let the process in Montpelier fix that. I've never seen anything like this in local politics before. We normally take very seriously our local responsibilities, and we would never send something to Montpelier that we knew had serious flaws in it. But uh, that's what the progressives have come down for on this side. And I think it's a really problematic vote and really undercuts uh, the investments that we've made and that they've supported over the last year. I hope there'll be some political accountability for it at the polls next week. Uh, Can you take us through some mechanics here? If this passes, does this then have to be approved by the legislature? 
Yeah, that's exactly right, Kevin. Uh, it's this is a uh, something that you know, kind of in the weeds of how municipal government works that um, a lot of people don't realize. Cities, uh, municipal governments are creatures of state government. All of our all of our authority flows from state laws, and in fact, our municipal charters are state statutes. And so anytime the city of Burlington wants to make amendments to that uh, charter, we're essentially changing state law, and you need the approval of the legislature and the governor to do so. Generally, most of the time when charter changes have come through a typical process and gotten a lot of vetting at the local level, it's usually fairly routine for the legislature to approve them. In a situation like this, uh, I would hope the legislature would, would, would take very seriously their, the review. Um, but it's, you know, if something secures the support of local voters, um, that's something that, uh, state legislatures properly have real deference for. So anyone who just says, let's let Montpelier fix this, I think is not recognizing uh, the reality of our responsibilities at the local level. Uh, we've got some calls on the line, but th- we're going to make them wait because uh, the mayor's uh, tight on time, and we'll take those calls after the mayor leaves and we'll discuss them. Um, okay, let's now move on to other ones. You've got ranked choice voting. You've got all resident voting. There's a there's a, a ballot item about a carbon impact fee on new construction. Um, ranked choice voting, that's a complicated one. Where do you stand on that? It is a complicated one, Kevin, and my, my position is a little complicated on it. Uh, here's, the, here's where I am on it. I, I'll be voting no. I, I'd urge others to consider voting no as well. I'm voting no because what this would do is it would make the ranked choice voting system for the general elections uh, going forward for all offices in Burlington. That's actually a pretty unusual use of ranked choice voting. There, there are a growing number of jurisdictions around the country that use ranked choice voting, but most of those uses are in primaries. I think it's well served for primaries where, you know, right now and may, you know, our, our current Vermont system, you can have someone win a primary with a very small plurality. And I think that is problematic. And the ranked choice voting offers a good way of, of sorting that out and a practical way of sorting that out. I think in a general election, it would be far better to stick with our current system where uh, if someone gets a, you know, if no one gets a significant plurality, you go to a, a formal runoff process and you can have a real debate of ideas and refinement of ideas between, between those candidates. We, we had this here in Burlington for two mayoral elections. It, it was, I was very active in those elections before I was serving, but I was helping out with other people's campaigns. And I just thought the, that the, the having a ranked choice voting really, um, really took away from the typical debate you see in campaigns because everyone's worrying about getting the second and third votes of other candidates. It sort of incentivized candidates to take very mushy positions, not draw bright lines between them and other candidates. And I didn't like the system. I don't think we should go back to it. Uh, and uh, I, we'll see We'll see where that lands. I can just see uh, where private developers uh, stand on the carbon impact fee for new construction. Um, tell us about that one. Well, actually, Kevin, you might be surprised there. I mean, we did, we, we, we did a lot of work in the, in the lead up to taking this to the voters with, uh, with builders that will be potentially impacted by this. And their, um, with their, we took their feedback and we're phasing in. If this passes, uh, certain provisions will be phased in. There's actually a lot of, uh, acceptance from the development community that this is the direction that we need to go that, 
the electric that this is basically another incentive, another tool to move us towards electrifying everything, which really is the city of Burlington's policy and which most builders um, have, uh, have, it, have, you know, kind of adapted to and, and see benefits of. I mean, frankly, this policy is combined with the fact that the Burlington Electric Department hands out very generous incentives for electrification um, as well. So this is something most builders can manage. I think it is important I want existing, I want homeowners and uh, owners of existing properties to understand that this does not apply to them. This only applies to new construction and to large buildings that uh, are generally, for the most part, owned by our institutions. And um, I, I, I strongly support this and, and have been one of the architects of it and think that this is a really important piece of legislation for Burlington to continue its decades of environmental leadership, which have been really quite significant. We're the first city in the country to be source 100% of our electricity from renewable sources. Uh, we've had a great weatherization regime. If the rest of the country did what Burlington did, there'd be 200 less coal burning plants today than there are. This is the next step in that in that long legacy, and I think you know, I hope it's something Burlingtonians will support again. They supported it once already, Kevin, two years ago on town meeting day, but uh, the way that worked, it said if we were actually going to implement any uh, financial measures underneath it that we had to come back to voters. And so that's what we're doing now. And there's something around all resident voting. Uh, I haven't had a chance to read it, so maybe you can lay it out for us. Yeah, your listeners may be familiar with actions taken by Winooski and Montpelier, I, I believe, and uh, maybe even more Vermont municipalities at this point to open up local elections, including school, school board elections, to all legal residents. Um, this is particularly important in Winooski and, and Burlington because of the large number of refugees that have settled in the area in recent decades and who currently um, do not are not able to vote in these elections and not able to serve on municipal boards and commissions. This would change that, and it's... Um, it's something that was recently uh, approved. This, there was a court case over this that the Vermont Supreme Court recently weighed in on and said that municipalities are allowed to do this. Burlington had a vote on this one other time back in 2015. I, I, I supported this change then, and I'm, I'm supporting it again now. And I'm, I, I'm thinking that, that as this idea has kind of settled in over the last uh, seven, eight years, um, I'm thinking this is likely to pass this time. Okay, and lastly, polling locations? <laughs> well, this is uh, this is pretty in the weeds, Kevin, and it, again, just goes to how detailed our charter is. Uh, the charter currently says that you need to have a polling location in every municipal ward. We now have eight municipal wards, and... A couple of them, it's actually pretty challenging. There are not, um, there are not good public assembly spaces in those wards for, to hold in-person elections. The other thing going on here is the in-person elections just become more, less and less significant every year. We're down to well less than half of the votes take place on election day. So this, if this passes, and I do support this, it would give us some additional flexibility if these trends continue to, um, you know, make some modest changes to the way we manage the in-person part of uh, Election Day. And before I let you go, because uh, I know time is tight and you're you're good to join us, thank you. Um, how is the new 
uh, community shelter for people experiencing homelessness there on Elmwood Avenue going? Yeah, thanks for checking in on that. This is a uh, this is a new shelter that I strongly supported to respond to the, the huge, unprecedented levels of homelessness that we're seeing right now, and to um, give us a, essentially a way to approach homelessness with a kind of public health uh, angle. Um, and this, uh, we, we conceived of this idea in late 2021. It took us about a year to go through all the permitting and the construction. And the shelter is now open, and it is fully um, occupied. We, we we had people move in over the course of several weeks, and so far uh, there have been uh, no serious issues, um, which was a concern by, by some leading up to this. Um, and in fact, we I did just hear yesterday that uh, for the we actually have succeeded in one of the people that came in in recent weeks has already moved out and moved into permanent housing, which is one of the real goals of this facility is that it, it serves as that kind of bridge for people who are having real challenges to permanent housing, to drug and mental health treatment, and in some cases to, to jobs. And uh, it's good to see that we're having some of those successes already. I, I strongly support this, and I'm, I'm very hopeful it's going to be an important new tool for us as we really attempt to end homelessness in the years ahead. We're very committed to that. I've created a special assistant to end homelessness. There are a handful of communities around the country that have succeeded at that. I want Burlington to be on that list. Well, good luck with that. That's uh, I walked by it the other day, and um, let's hope that it succeeds. Ma- uh, Mayor Moreau Weinberger on charter changes, ballot items, town meeting day. Uh, you're good to join us. Thank you very much. Oh, it's great to join you, Kevin. I look forward to coming back sometime. How's your How's your catcher's crouch, by the way? <laughs> I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I've had a good off season. I'm I'm ready for uh, for the season to start in in April. I'm I'm hopeful. Uh, even after his uh, heart attack last year, I'm, I'm hearing positive reports that Bill Lee is going to come out and uh, have another season with the Burlington Cardinals. So, okay, so. and and one more thing, in in response, in exchange for having you on the show, we have a demand, and that is that you and your friend uh, uh, USAID uh, Director Samantha Power come on the show together. Uh, and uh, to discuss all, we'll discuss international uh, affairs and we'll discuss municipal affairs as well. And until that happens, we won't have you on this show ever again. Oh my goodness! Wow, that is uh, that is uh, that's quite something, Kevin. I'll uh, I guess I'll get on the phone to Washington. Yeah, please get on the phone to Washington immediately and make the demand. <laughs> uh, Mayor, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you, Kevin. Thanks for doing this show. Okay. Appreciate the chance to talk with you and your listeners. All right. Okay. We are going to uh, take a break and come back and do a quick couple of things. We'll take some calls and uh, you're listening. I, I'm Kevin Ellis and you're on Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're back on Vermont Viewpoint. We're going to go to the phones and take Fred from Newberry. Fred, you're on the line. Welcome. Morning. Hey, you know, it's very interesting that uh, in a in a uh, constitutional republic, policing is extremely difficult to do. Did you know that? <laughs> I, I guess you did. I think policing is difficult to do, uh, regardless of the government that it operates. Oh, under. oh come on! Regard? Uh, uh, no, 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 no. We got a Bill of Rights, 
and the Bill of Rights supersede everything else. True. You know that. That's true. Okay, then. So when a police officer comes up to you and he, and he, and he uh, stops you, you've got to have a reason to do it. So the first thing you ask him is, why did you stop me? And he'll give you a reason. And if he can't give you a good, valid reason, then he's broken the law. He's violated the Constitution. Well, the Fourth Amendment. That's search and seizure. Well, it's crazy. Unless he lets you go. If, if, if he said, if, if, we'll, we'll have, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll have the executive director of the ACLU on this show to talk about this because it is a big hey, issue. Any, in, anyways, what you want to do is, I talked to you about this before. You said you were too busy. You didn't have time to do it. But you want to go to YouTube and look up uh, First Amendment audit. And what happens is these people go around with cameras and they test police officers to see if they know what the First Amendment is, if they know what the Second, well, the Second Amendment really doesn't apply. But in, in, the Fourth Amendment is another good one, search and seizure. A police officer can't search your car unless he has reasonable, articulable suspicion that you've committed a crime. Yeah, that's right. He can't search. The only, the only thing he can do is look into your car. He says, hey, look, I want to open up your car and look into it. He, he, they bully people. They sit, I mean, they scare people. People are scared of the police. Yeah. Because that's how, because of the way they operate. That's right. You want to look it up. You want to, you said you didn't have time to look it up. Yeah. You want to take 40 minutes to look it up and you'll be surprised. Yeah. I've been reading about the, I've been reading about the police and those tensions all my life and I don't need to look that up. But Fred, thank you for the call. I appreciate it. Um, so before we go to our next break, uh, and come back with, get this, get this, Brady Farkas, we're going to have the Rutland Herald sports writer legend Tom Haley on the show, uh, in the 10 o'clock hour to talk about girls and boys high school basketball as we head, well, we're in the playoffs and as we head to the Barry Auditorium. So Tom Haley's going to join us. I want to do a couple of headlines, uh, before we get there. So, with regard to the fact that people experiencing homelessness are living in hotels, the Vermont House and Senate budget writers have hammered out a deal to extend the homelessness hotel program, the emergency housing program, through June 30th. Okay? But it's not, uh, it's going to change a little bit. You have to meet certain eligibility standards. Uh, to be in that program, uh, the, the house wanted it to be no eligibility requirement. Uh, the Senate, uh, kind of siding a little bit with Governor Phil Scott on this one, wanted to shut down the program and make, uh, force people experiencing homelessness to pass certain eligibility because their view was these hotels are filled and people who really needed the shelter were not getting it because others were in the way. So there's going to be eligibility requirements. The program is going to go through June 3rd, uh, and there are roughly 1,800 households living in motels right now. Um, and so they, the House and Senate has have made a deal. What comes after that? Uh, is I, I don't know. We're going to have to wait and see. Um, on a lighter note, uh, 
the legislature is about to uh, pass a bill, or at least they're talking about it, about a $2,000 fine uh, of GPS providers who do not warn truckers that it's too dangerous to go through the smuggler's notch, uh, that narrow notch in Stowe. I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, and third, uh, the, the Sam Bankman freed the crypto, uh, uh, used to be billionaire. Um, one of his executives at the now bankrupt FTX cryptocurrency exchange has pled guilty, uh, to, uh, criminal charges among them campaign finance fraud. Uh, this guy, Nishad Singh, a former colleague of Sam Bankman-Fried, he's the guy who engineered the $1 million advertising blitz in favor of Vermont Congresswoman Becca Ballant in the primary against sitting Lieutenant Governor Molly Gray, and that led to um, a, a, a accusations back and forth in that campaign of hypocrisy, double-dealing, homophobia. And um, I wrote a blog post at KevinKLS.com last week about Ballant and how she seems to be pioneering a new communication strategy by adopting this this moniker, Scrappy Little Dyke. I'm not sure you can say dyke on the radio, but I think you can. Um and I, I got taken to task on the blog by others who uh, said that I was not uh, appropriately discussing the fact that one of the reasons Ballant won that primary is because she benefited from a million-dollar advertising campaign from a dark money super PAC uh, against Gray. Um, I, I've talked to people on both sides of this. The, the gray people, and I would throw in the Leahy people and others, uh, I think they really are convinced that, that the, uh, that Ballant won that primary because of that money. Uh, of course the Ballant people say that's not true. The, the money was, uh, those ads went up in the air long after Ballant had surged in the primary. So we're gonna debate that, uh, for a long time to come, but, uh, the with this prosecution of this guy, uh, we're getting closer and closer to knowing exactly how that money flowed. Uh, Balance campaign has said that they are sequestering the money that they received from these guys so that when the Justice Department calls them uh, to refund the money, they will do so. Um there's some there's some wiggle room here, but we'll get back to that after the break and in future shows. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's it's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, and we're going to talk high school basketball with apologies to Brady Farkas, but... Um, and we're going to have to do it at a little more basic level 
because our audience may not be as sophisticated sports-wise. So what have we done? We've brought legendary sports writer Tom Haley onto the show to talk, to tell us exactly what's going on and who's going to the Barry Auditorium. Tom, welcome. Oh, great to be here. Uh, downtown Rutland here. Uh, no TikTok, just uh, on uh, the greatest invention ever. Thank you, Alexander Graham Bell. And uh, we are... Uh, of course, right in the tournament time, the girls are already at Barry Auditorium. The boys are all trying to get there, and it's just a, a great time of year. Tom, it seems to me, I've got my uh, Rutland Herald Times Argus in front of me with the pairings. Uh, this is the year, let's go to right to Division Two, boys and girls. This is the year of the Spalding and the Fairhaven. It is. Uh you got, uh, of course, uh, both teams undefeated in the boys, um, Spalding and Fairhaven. Um, I, I have talked to a few people who have seen both teams, and they seem to think that Fairhaven can't beat Spalding. Uh, this Spalding team must be really something because I, I, Fairhaven is very, very good. Uh, uh, their guard, Sawyer Ramey, uh, a thousand point scorer, handles the ball well. I mean, here's a kid who's a thousand point scorer and scoring might not even be anywhere near the best part of his game. He's a great passer. Um, Getting a lot of interest um, from from some colleges, uh, might go the prep school route, but just a great, great player. And uh, I, I can't disagree with the people picking Spalding, um, uh, but I, I I think that you know I, I think they better play their good their you know their their game because Fairhaven has got a lot of weapons. They have a coach. With over 500 victories in Bob Prenovost, uh, Sawyer Ramey, the great player, is his grandson, and this will be Bob's last year as the coach and Sawyer's final year as uh, he's a senior. So there's a lot of motivation for this Slater team, and uh, I think Fairhaven and Spalding would indeed be a dream final and 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 one that we might get. Uh, both boys and girls, right? And boys and girls, yes, exactly. Wow. Well, and and let's see. It is today is Wednesday, so we're going to have Barry Odd action uh, tonight. Uh, both on the yes, we will. So let's see. I'm going to Wednesday. We're going to have uh, all sorts of good games to go to tonight. We've got in Division Two. We've got U32 at at North Country. Uh wow, North Country's eighteen and two in the Yeah, boys. that'll be uh that'll be a tough hurdle uh for the Raiders for sure. Uh you, you gotta believe uh you gotta think North Country wins that game and then I believe um it, North Country would host MSJ, Mount St. Joseph on Friday, correct? Right, right. And uh that's that's an interesting game. Uh I, I hate to sound provincial, but I think both Rutland teams, Rutland High and MSJ, are far better than their seeds. And 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 I look for MSJ to give uh, 
North Country a battle. MSJ features um, a guard, Owen Trainer, who this year set the school record for points in a game with 53. Whoa. And they also have a, a sophomore post player, uh, Des Krakova, who is uh, really, really come into his own um yeah, as a rebounder and a scorer, uh, you know, he's a threat to, for a double-double any night. And uh, he's, he's a really a big kid. He doesn't look like a sophomore, physically intimidating, and, and he doesn't play like a sophomore. So uh, I, I think MSJ could keep it interesting up in North Country. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm really interested to see what happens here. I think uh, they're not your... Uh, Typical uh, seed, uh, number six seed. Well, and and let's see, uh, tonight at 6.30 at the Barry Odd uh, in Division uh, 4, number uh, 3, Leland Gray at 17-5 against number 2, Blue Mountain at 18-3. And And I believe Blue Mountain's the defending champs. Uh, no, they're not. Oh, uh, sorry. West Rutland is. Sorry, that's yeah. right. Oh, yeah, the dreaded West Rutland. Yes. The West Rutland uh, defeated Proctor last year in the state championship game. A great, one of the greatest finals ever, I think. It was just uh, riveting from start to finish. But anyway, <clears throat> I look for Blue Mountain to win that game. I've seen Leland and Gray uh, several times. They're uh, they're a good team. Um but uh, from everything I've heard about Blue Mountain and uh, Jordan Alley and her teammates, uh, I look for Blue Mountain to move on against West Rutland Saturday at noon in the championship game. Okay. So, Tom, uh, what do you? Who's the best player in uh, for the girls and the boys in these divisions in Vermont right now? Boy, I, I, that that's a hard question. I haven't seen a lot of the teams in the north. It's an easy question in uh, Division Four for the girls. It's uh, it's West West Rutland's Peyton Gway, <coughs> hands down. She's reached a thousand points this year as a sophomore. Wow! So let that sink in a minute. Uh, she did play as an eighth grader. That's true, but still to to reach a thousand. As a sophomore is uh, pretty incredible, and she could wind up being the fourth girl, if nothing gets in her way, the fourth girl in the state to reach 2,000. Uh, she's a special, special player, and it's not just scoring. She plays great defense, handles the ball, rebounds, a multifaceted player who just happens to score a ton of points. She's uh the all-time uh, leading scorer for for points in a game, a 42-43, something like that. She's exceptional. So, uh, but that's probably the only division um, <laughs> where there's an easy answer because I think uh, in the other divisions there, there's probably a lot of good players that arguments could be made for. Well, this kid up at uh, Hazen who plays for longtime coach Aaron Hill. Uh, I've, I'm, right. I'm blanking on his name, but boy, he is a rebounder. He's a defender and a scorer. Oh, Tyler Rivard. Yeah. Yeah. What did he? He scored. Um, 
he had 50 in a game this year, he, right? He, he and, did. Uh, he had 50 in a game. He's a thousand point scorer, and he's, uh, I guess he's a very big, uh, physical player. Yep. Um, and, uh, yeah, he, uh, you know, he definitely might be the best player for sure in, uh, in D3 boys. So if you are planning your, uh, week and week, your weeknight basketball viewing and your weekend plans, you've got a bunch of great girls games coming up, uh, tonight and Saturday at the odd. And then next week we get into the boys, right? Yes. And so, uh, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be great. There's a lot of when you look ahead and you try to project who's going to move on. There's a a lot of enticing matchups for sure. How Tom, how long have you been covering uh, high school sports? I guess since seventy seventy three, <laughs> and in that was in New Hampshire uh, until I came to the the Herald in eighty seven. But even when I was in New Hampshire, uh, I was on the border. I was in Claremont, so I was covering both sides, you know, both sides of the border. And, uh, yeah, so okay, been a great ride. Well, okay, now let's go down. <clears throat> okay, let that sink in, listeners. 1973, this guy started covering uh, sport, high school sports. So, Tom, you want to go down the uh, line and do some predictions? Yeah, we could do that. Okay. Uh girls, uh let's see. Division 3, what do you think? I'm uh, sorry, Division uh, let's well, let's go Division 1. Uh which, okay. and those games, those finals will be played at uh, Patrick Gymnasium. Uh in the Correct. semis, you got St. Johnsbury against Rutland and you got Essex against CVU. Okay. Well, St. Johnsbury already beat Rutland. Oh, right. I see that. Uh great great game. Overtime game. Fifty to forty-seven, I believe. Um, so, um, St. John's Barry, I, I, I still like. I still like the top seed. I, I hate doing that, you know. I, I don't like being shocked, as they say in the brackets. But uh, I, I, I really like CVU, uh, especially now that um, that Rutland is out of there. I thought Rutland was a real threat to them. Um, but, uh, but Rutland had a misstep, uh, Shay J picked him off and, um, I'm kind of thinking, uh, CVU for the whole thing. Wow. Okay. Uh, division two girls. Okay. Um, I, th- I think probably again, I hate to go chalk, but 20 and 0 Spalding. I do think 20 and 0 Fairhaven has a shot. They lack um, size, but but all the players do a good job of helping uh, out and crashing the boards. Um, they have a great three or four really good uh, three-point shooters. So I think Fairhaven will be a threat. <clears throat> if, the, if the shots are dropping, I, I think they possibly could do it, but... If you had to, if I had to pick somebody, I've, I've got to go with the Crimson Tide. Okay, you know we're going to take a break, Tom. If you can hang on with us, we'll we'll uh, come back after the break and finish these predictions. Um, if you have to go and uh, you know get on the road to a game, we understand. But we'll be back. Uh, it's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. You're listening to WDEV.
Hey, we're back with I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, the friendly pioneer. We're talking high school basketball today with Tom Haley, uh, the legendary sports writer from the Rutland Herald. Tom, I got to make a, do an apology here. We're getting calls uh, complaining that we're not focusing on hockey, and you know what? We're going to have to I'll leave. Tell them why. You know what? I'm, go- I'm doing a hockey game at four o'clock. <laughs> what are you doing? What's the game? I'm doing Stowe at Rutland. Okay, so okay, you know what? Apologies to my friend Lindsey Curley, who's uh, Phil Scott's Commerce Secretary, who's got like oh, yes, nine course. kids who've all gone on to great careers in hockey. But uh, we got a bunch of hockey going on. Uh, it were it's Wednesday. Oh gosh, Division One boys CVU at South Burlington, Spalding at Essex. BFA St. Albans at Colchester, uh, all sorts of hockey going on. That's girls that I was – oh, I'm sorry. That was boys I was just talking about. A lot going on. Yep, absolutely. It's at that time of year. Okay, Tom. Uh, division oh, – back to basketball. Division three girls. Prediction? Division three girls. Um, Let's see. We got uh, – Thursday, we're going to have People's Academy at number one, Windsor, 19 and 2, and number three, Thetford at number two, Hazen, 20 and 1. Whoa. 20 and 1, but, um, I'm, I'm, I'm confidently saying Windsor. Okay. I just think that, that they have, they were so young when the season started. They, they graduated all five. Starters from last year's state championship team, and then the new cast, which is probably like three little sisters of the, of the, the of the five that that were starters last year. Two or three are are, are younger sisters. They have just improved so much uh, through each each year. And I know Hazen is a is a really good team and and has a really good. Uh, a great player, but I'm, I've got to go. I got to go with the Yellow Jackets. I just think uh, that, that I think they're the team to beat. Okay. Uh, and, okay. And you know, in the in their second meeting late in the year with Fairhaven, they beat Fairhaven handily. So that tells you something. Okay. Now let's go. Let's go right down the line on boys. Uh, boys Division One. We got Burlington seven seven and twelve against number eight Mountain Mansfield tonight. Uh, who do you like in Division One these days? Oh, I think uh, probably CVU. And how much excitement is there in Hinesburg? Uh, they got both the, the number one seed in boys and the number one seed in girls. But like I alluded to um, earlier in the show. Um, in, in high school basketball, one of the exciting components of it, uh, that playoff time is the upset. And I, I, and I know it sounds like I'm being a homer, but I think number seven Rutland is much, much better than their seed. They handled Essex last night with relative ease and, uh, I, I think they're a team to watch. They, I know they, I know they have a, Imposing hurl in front of them in Rice, and uh, you gotta you'd be crazy not to say that Rice is the favorite. But you know, I, I think Rollin could make that game interesting. 
And Division Two, of course, it sure looks like Spalding and Fairhaven are headed for a, a, a massive clash at the very odd. For but, sure. But who knows? For sure. But who knows? Oh no, no, absolutely. Um, there, there are some, uh, there are some other teams out there in the mix, um, and uh, I think that uh, one of them is, without question, number four, Montpelier. When I was up at the odd the other night, I heard a lot of people thinking that uh, Montpelier is capable of shuffling the the seeds. So uh, um, that uh, that team, uh, you know, that 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 could be a team in the mix for sure. Yeah, I, I really like Montpelier too. So yeah, I don't think it's just a two horse race. I saw I saw uh, uh, Spalding beat Montpelier at Montpelier. Uh, yep. in, in fairly convincing fashion, they're just bigger right. and stronger. Uh, but, yep. uh, Montpelier, you know, if Ronnie Ribey Williams, uh, uh, goes off and, you know, he had 22 the other night, he, they may make it, uh, interesting. Yep, I think so. I wouldn't be surprised. But that, that's also what I hear all the time about Spalding is, is, is how strong they are. How yeah. strong and physical they are. They are. They're strong and physical. Okay. Division three boys, boy, Winooski, 18 and 0, Hazen, 17 and 3. Um, I haven't seen Winooski this year. I think it'd be year. crazy to pick somebody else other, other than Winooski. Um, one of the interesting games, uh, to me, uh, to, tonight is Randolph, number nine Randolph at number eight Green Mountain. Uh, Green Mountain had really come on late in the year. You always want to give weight, a little more weight to the, the later games down the stretch. And Green Mountain defeated what I think is a really good uh, White River Valley team. Um, so they get Randolph tonight at home. Unfortunately, then I think they go right <laughs> right into play number one Winooski. But but I, I like this Green Mountain team. Uh I, I think they've got some potential, and I look for them to win that game uh, tonight at home against Randolph. And then uh, Division Four, you've got a, a, a number two uh, Rivendell team at sixteen and four, and OIC number one Long Trail at eighteen and one. There'll be a lot of driving in the uh, in that bracket uh, up and down the state. Oh yeah, that's for sure. Um, I've seen Long Trail a few times. They've got height. They're a good team. They're the number one seed, but I certainly don't think uh, that they're a lock. Um, I, you know, I, I think there's there's probably some uh, Rivendell can challenge them, and uh, um, I think that uh, you know Mid Vermont maybe uh, Mid Vermont and Long Trail had a close game during the season. So that could be a really interesting division. And if you live up close anywhere to where you are, I don't think you could go wrong tonight uh, by taking in the Proctor at Twinfield game. Ooh, uh, yes. Twinfield and Proctor played early in the year, and I was like December 12th. It was like maybe even the season opener. And... uh and, and and it was a five point game. Twinfield won a, it. Was, it was a five point game, and since then Proctor has added a a player, a post player who's tall, 
and uh, rebounds well. He's also a scorer named Jacob Patch. And I think the Twin Field, um, the game in Twin Field tonight uh, could be a really, really special game. Well, I'm sad to see that, that my old team, where I was the head coach for uh, seven oh, years Sharon, or so, yeah, Sharon, uh, Sharon Academy. They're tough. up against it tonight. I give them zero chance. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, this Log Trail team is, well, they're, they're, they're special. They're, they're, they're a legitimate number one seed, no question about it. Yeah. Um, and uh, now, now I know, of course, that, um, that this is viewpoint. And you get into some pretty, uh, you know, heavy uh, social issues. That's right. And uh, I don't know if you're, you're aware um, that uh, Mid Vermont Christian refused to play Long Trail. Yeah. Because Long Trail has a transgender student. I'm talking good to girls on the girls' side now. That's right. Uh, Mid Vermont uh, refused to play the Long Trail girls. Um, on the basis of a trans, them having a transgender student. Now the transgender student is probably six foot one, blocks five, six shots a game, good rebounder, uh, probably would not be a starter, wouldn't be a starter on the boys team, but is a very effective player on the girls team. And after the pairings came out, now after the pairings came out and they saw that they were playing, um, Long Trail, Mid Vermont pulled out of the tournament, uh, citing, uh, safety reasons. Yeah. I, uh, Tom, in all your years covering these, uh, games, what do you make of that? Uh, it, putting the politics aside, I mean, I, I, I my yeah. reactions is, is a little bit about this is another Example of how the parents need to get out of the way of the kids here, but uh, what what do you make of all this? Well, I I just don't, you know, as far as where it's headed, I think, you know, like like I, I asked one of the principals uh, at one of our local schools. I said, well, what will happen if uh, if a girls' team uh, got three? Transgender students in the on the starting five, yeah. you know, and just dominated. And and her answer was, uh, she didn't want to answer uh, uh, hypothetically, but she did say that she didn't think that would ever happen in Vermont because of our small population. Uh, she thought that would be pretty far fetched. Uh, but but that's going to be that's going to be interesting to see exactly uh, where that is headed and how many schools. Take the stance that Mid Vermont took, uh, you know, and if that does it, and then it, it forces the hand of, uh, I guess, of the VPA. That's right. And uh, you know, and and I, I've been I've been critical of the VPA now and then, but but I'm not a I'm not a VPA basher the way some people are. I think right. they do a heck of a job in that yeah. little office on Prospect Street in Montpelier. I think they, uh, I, I, they they have a lot to deal with. They have a lot coming at them, and I think they handle it uh, pretty darn well. When, I, when, when the open tournament started, I was against it. I, I still 
kind of on the fence, but I was really against it when it started. Of course, I got to take a break, Tom. Uh, I got to take a break. Let's uh, keep you on for a few minutes after the break. We'll be back. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. We're back. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint, the friendly pioneer WDEV, and our guest is legendary Rutland Herald sports writer Tom Haley. And before the break, Tom, we were talking about this this transgender issue uh, over at the Mid Vermont Christian School, which has forfeited uh, its girls' games uh, and going to the tournament because of uh, Long Trail having a transgender student. And I had to interrupt you for the break. What do you make of this? I I think. Like I said, we I really don't know where that is headed. Um, you know, you, you can you can try to analyze this by by making a hypothetical where what if a excuse me what if a student what what if a, a program does like a girls basketball team does load up with transgender students and absolutely becomes uh, dominant. Um, you know what? Then, then you know there's going to be an outcry. I mean, right now it's isolated. It's it's only one school. But uh, you know, if if depending on the the, the turn that the road takes, uh, you know, it, it could become a more uh, controversial subject. I guess. Yeah, it could. Um, And my take here, and I I agree with you, I have been critical of the VPA uh, in the past. uh, For our listeners, the Vermont Principals Association, the VPA is the body in Montpelier that governs interscholastic sports throughout Vermont um, and debates and all sorts of other activities. And I've been critical of them in the past, but uh, it's a tough, tough job. Uh, they've got a oh, lot. They've got a it lot is. coming I at think them. They, I think they get a pretty high grade. I, th- I think they they do okay. Uh, not to not to switch horses in midstream here, but I, I also brought up when they be first began the open tournament. I was very critical of that. Um, you, of course, you used to have to finish in basketball eight and twelve, or in other words, win. 40% of your games to qualify, which I thought made the uh, regular season more meaningful. But, you know, I get it. You know, uh, everybody this way gets uh, a tournament experience, and it's it's hard enough to fill the field um, in, in, in all four divisions. Um, so, you know, maybe the open tournament is, is, is the way it has to be. Uh, but... Uh, uh, the the old forty percent rule made for some uh, pretty exciting games down the stretch. There would be schools that needed to win their last say six games in order to qualify, and sometimes they did, and and that was exciting. Um, but uh, yeah, they they get a tough job over there in in that office at Montpelier, and uh, you know 
I know I see how hard they work. I know they're really committed. I think they they do a good job. And of course, we're always going to have uh, disagreements. Yeah, I, I think one of the joys of having you on is, boy, just talking about sports and uh, high school kids, uh, especially and uh, the experience for them. And I've, I've as a as a father of four uh, who all took part in sports at some at a very high level in college, some some just in high school. Boy, if we can just, if we adults can keep our mouths shut and cheer positively and stay out of the kids' way so they can have the experience, I think that's sort of rule number one is, uh, is we parents uh, should cheer positively and otherwise keep your mouth shut and go downstairs and get a hot dog at the Barry Odd. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh <laughs> You know, after the the well publicized incident at a sub a lower level game in uh, Grand Isle County, yeah, uh, when West Rutland and Proctor played uh, in boys basketball, which is I think the greatest uh, small school rivalry in Vermont, uh, they read they read a uh, uh, each coach, the Proctor coach and the West Rutland coach read a little speech about referring to the Grand Isle incident and how they hoped that nothing else would occur here tonight and and I had I had heard from uh fans and parents after that game that that was probably <laughs> the best behaved crowd they'd ever seen at a West Rutland Proctor game. So hopefully maybe uh you know, from some of that that stuff, uh and that was just total garbage up there that that in that game we can learn from it yeah yeah that's right as well as as a man as someone who's stood on the sidelines of many a game in the freezing cold weather whether it's soccer or whatever you do get that surge of adrenaline when your kid is on that field and you just want to run out there and uh no question about it but you just got to fight that urge and uh And, and and the other the other piece of that is um, the officials' um, shortage that we're dealing with. Yeah. Uh, I've been to s- numerous games this year be- where, because of the shortage, the same officials worked the JV game and the varsity game. And uh, once in a while, and, and not just in basketball, but other sports, there's been uh, rescheduling yeah. because of the official shortage and in football even Thursday night games and um, some talk of maybe playing even Sunday games because of the uh, the lack of officials and and this doesn't help that <laughs> you know the abuse they take uh, uh, from the parents and the fans um, probably like every other call all night and uh, that that it makes it a tough job. I, I coached in and, division. And not as attractive as it should be. Yeah, I coached in division four at Sharon. We got to the odd one right. year and, uh, and I was during a time, we were losing to Proctor by eight in the fourth quarter and a really good oh, Proctor, oh. really good Proctor oh, team. No, that wasn't the game where you were. Well, no, I guess that was Blake that was coaching that night when, when Proctor was ahead. Yeah. Yeah, that's seven right. at the odd with like forty-five seconds left. And somehow won it. Yeah, that's right. No, no, we lost uh, to a superior Proctor team. They were, I gotta say, they were better coached than my team. 
And that was on me. You know, I can't remember the coach's name at Proctor, but he was that. Dick Wilcox. Oh God, Wilcox. They ran that, uh, they ran that, uh, flex offense to perfection. Yep. Uh, and they were good defensively and, uh, it, there was nothing we could do. But during a timeout, I was standing there right next to the referee, a good guy. And I just said, wow, this is too much fun. This, this ought to be illegal. I got to tell you. <laughs> Yeah, isn't it a great place to play a game oh. and watch a game? Well, yeah. we will uh, we will see you all there. Uh, starting there's games, there's girls games tonight, uh, all through the weekend. There's boys games next week. Uh, so the Barry Auditorium is your place to be from tonight through next Saturday. And I guarantee you, uh, Rutland Herald sports writer Tom Haley is going to be there. I'll try to make a few games, and we'll uh, we'll have a hot dog downstairs. Absolutely, looking forward to it. Tom, thank you for joining us. Okay, Kevin, have a good one. We'll Take see you. Okay, so we've got a couple of minutes to discuss that. Let let that sink in. Tom Haley has been writing about sports, high school sports, since 1973. Okay. I was in grade school. I was in ninth grade at the time. And the way I got to just tell you, the way he, the reverence with which he talks about high school sports is inspiring. It is, uh, he doesn't do it for the money. Uh, and he, he writes these stories. He publicizes these kids and their exploits. And it is, it is really a sight to behold. Um, Tom Haley, we'll see him. I'm going to go to a game tonight at the Barry Auditorium. It's going to be girls. I've got my bad set of glasses on. It's going to be girls semifinals. Leland and Gray versus number two Blue Mountain at 6:30. That's going to be a good one. And then we'll uh, we'll get into uh, boys next week, but. Uh, Barry Auditorium, legendary place to play. And I got to add one other note. I noticed that the legislature has, uh, appropriated a bunch of money to the Barry Auditorium. I don't know whether it goes to the city of Barry or whomever, uh, to make some, uh, infrastructure upgrades to the Barry Aud. Sorely in need, uh, what a great idea. They're going to fix the heating system and uh, probably fix some seats and the roof and things like that because that is a jewel. I was so glad to see that uh, regular season games were being, were played there. used to be that Odd would kind of sit unused. I used to play town team basketball there on Sunday nights, but uh, – but uh, it's great to see regular season games going there. I know that uh, Coach Titus of the uh, Harwood Highlanders uh, got to coach a couple of girls' games uh, at the at the odd. And, uh, boy, it's just great to see that thing in use. What a great place. If you see me there, come up and we'll talk. Come up to me. We'll have a hot dog and we'll talk and we'll have some, a candy bar and drink something really, really unhealthy. And we'll uh, we'll talk WDEV and uh, high school hoops. We're going to take a break. Uh, we'll be back. We'll open the phones for 15, the last 15 minutes of the show. Well, last 10 minutes of the show. And then I've got some announcements and we'll, uh, we'll see you after the break. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're back. Vermont Viewpoint. 
WDEV. Anne Henrik died last month. Anne Henrik taught me how to wash dishes. She taught me how to make a bed, how to bartend, and most of all, how to work really, really hard at something that matters. In the early years of American skiing, that is to say the 1960s, Anne and her husband, Amo, ran the Birkenhaus, an Austrian-style inn at the base of Stratton Mountain in Vermont. Amo also ran the ski school at Stratton, bringing Austrian ski instructors to America and allowing college kids like me to teach other others how to ski. Back then, the Birkenhaus was my second home, and Anne and Amo, my second parents. In one of the more insane decisions ever, my own parents drove us from New Jersey to Stratton almost every weekend in winter. The drive was six hours. We arrived at the Birkenhaus exhausted and starving, but there was Anne welcoming, welcoming us in. Amo was in the dining room after the dinner playing guitar and singing Austrian folk songs. Young ski instructors were hanging around, homesick, looking for love, or just the sounds of home. The inn had a giant red door, push, don't pull. There was a game room with bumper pool, an exotic activity back then. Everything was exciting. We were there to ski Saturday morning, lace-up boots, cable bindings, really long skis, First lift up the mountain at 8.30. It was magical, if not freezing cold. Last month, we lost Anne, and I can't express in one blog post what she meant to me. She was born in 1937 in Germany. She and Amo made their way to the United States, where he was asked to start the ski school at the fledgling, fledgling Stratton. I didn't know it as a kid, but Anne ran a very tight ship. No frivolity. She hid the hard work behind the scenes, friendly to us kids, but super efficient. The napkins on the tables were magically folded just in the right triangles. When the Birkenhaus was to full to capacity, Anne had us stay in the basement of her home next door. It was tight. We slept in bunk beds, and we loved it. The next morning, it was up early for the first chair, 8.30. We stashed the PB&Js in a bag behind the ski school counter, Back then, no one stole anything. We just You just left your stuff out. We skied all day for about five bucks. And then it was back to the Birken House for dinner, exhausted. But ready for more music from Amo and the excitement of meeting new friends from all over New England. We sang along, transfixed. It was so different than our suburban New Jersey life. Thinking back, the best part may have been the lack of TV. Instead, board games, records and outside in the snow. Then it was up again Sunday for the peewee race until three, and then back in the station wagon for the six-hour drive home and school the next day. Little homework was ever completed. In college, I worked for Ann in the summers at the Birkin House, and believe me, we were there to work. I spent those summers peeling potatoes, painting the railings, cleaning the pool, setting the dining room table, and washing the dishes. She even let me bartend on occasion, some of the people I met across the bar then are still at Stratton today. They were and still are legends. Other guests included Robert Kennedy and his family, golf legend Arnold Palmer, and the Aussie tennis great John Newcomb and his other Aussie buddies. A prodigious amount of beer was consumed, but Anne's tight ship remained on schedule no matter who was in the dining room. Her capacity for work was legendary, and she instilled that ethic in the rest of us each summer. It was routine for us to work all day until 1 a.m. and be up 
to set the breakfast table at 6 a.m. Amo died in 2009. He was a man from the old country, a fabulous skier, woodsman, hiker, and mountain man of the first order. As a ski instructor working for him on weekends and through college, I would sometimes get to lead the class, lead a class of hotshots around the mountain. On other days, the freezing cold, it was over to the cub school to teach the little ones. Working for Amo meant that you were in the presence of greatness, intimidating, scary, and thrilling. His wife, Anne, was the same way. In her last days, her daughter, Benzie, and my dear friend moved Anne from Austria back to nearby Jamaica, Vermont. We were honored to celebrate her 85th birthday at the Jamaica House, an inn now owned by Benzie and run as an inn with hopes that it's just like the Birkin House. Benzie's building it into the inn that Anne would admire. She's all over social media and easy to find. So if you want to know more about Anne and Amo and their deep, profound legacy, drop Benzie a line or better yet, stay a night or two at the Jamaica House and breathe it all in. I drove down from Montpelier for Anne's birthday party, arrived early and got to chat with her, relaxing in her recliner. She greeted me as if it was yesterday. I was still 18 and there was work to do. No frivolity, right to business. I would have it no other way. Rest in peace, Anne Henrik. A true legend. Let's go to the phone. We've got William from Moortown. William, you're on the line. Welcome to the show. Hi. I I missed the uh, the intro to whatever you had to say about the Becca Ballin situation at the last hour, but I, I there's a few thoughts that I had that I just feel I need to share. Go for it. She, uh, I, I followed that campaign very closely for family reasons, which beside the point. But the uh, it, it it she, you know, consistently holds to the idea that this money just sort of appeared and that she had nothing to do with it. And I think just there's, there's this sort of crescendo of, of reporting that that she was totally in on it from the very beginning. There's a uh, a very nice article that appeared yesterday in a, a, a new outlet called uh, was it uh, oh god I want to say Punch okay but uh, it'll come to me um, it that uh, basically outlines how she took a meeting with with the Bankman freed people, and and you know where Molly sort of walked away from the money. Uh, she basically signaled that she was ready to to play ball, and you know all her denials that she had nothing to do with it are just demonstrably false. I've heard it said that it was sort of the perfect crime because people love Becca. But they, you know, she's got a very engaging personality. I mean, scrappy, as you say. Yeah. But uh, it, it is an original sin here. It's, you know, it's it. It can't be ignored. If you if you believe that money in politics is is evil, I mean, she still continues to plead for five and ten dollars some small contributions. But the, uh, you know, she she but she asked for support from from the Bankman Freed crowd and and she got it and then she proceeded to lie about it and she also you know had her campaign director saying that uh, that Molly was you know flirting with being homophobic by you know taking objection you know objecting to it yeah it's it's the, the name of the website is puck and oh it, puck it, yeah it, 
I know I know those people, and they're good, actually. Uh, it's a reputable website. If you read the first two pages, there's just no defending. I mean, she it's, it's they just brilliantly map out exactly what happened, and I don't think it's you know it's debatable. And so, you know the idea that she would have won anyway. The you know she had polling that 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 was just very very flawed, <laughs> and that was really the only indication that. That she was going to win anyway, but you know these very very flawed polls. Yeah, you're good to raise it. Uh, boy, this gets this gets down the rabbit hole and complicated. And now that it's the race is over, it's sort of journalistically it's kind of hard to go back. But I think you're raising really good points, uh, and we probably need to take it on. And you know what I'll do? I'll invite Becca on the show, uh, and uh, and. And, and and maybe somebody from Puck who wrote that story, and we'll get into it because this you're right. This money in politics needs to be dealt with, and it can't be just swept under the rug. It, 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 it you know I don't care how engaging her personality is if she's willing to just totally compromise her you know any sense of propriety in order to win. Yeah, you know, and 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 by the way, if she gets on, I would. Strongly urge you to, to uh, you know, to insist that it be Becca, not her campaign manager, because to, to date, good, she defers all questions to her campaign manager. She's been elected. Yeah, you know, her campaign manager should go away for a while. That's a cla- yeah, it's a classic tactic. Okay, uh, William, thank you for the call. Um, that's our show for today. Uh, you can email me at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. If you want to be a guest on the show, send us a suggestion. You can find me at kevinkellis.com. Subscribe to my newsletter and check out on, on Spotify, Twitter, or Apple Podcasts, the new Conflict of Interest podcast. The trailer is up. And uh, we're going to be having uh, many of the guests we have on the show we'll have on the podcast as well. It is Wednesday, so I will be back Friday, and we're going to talk about book banning with Claire Benedict and uh, others uh, about the book banning going on in Florida. We'll do that, and, and then we'll do all sorts of other things on the Friday show. Our show is directed, produced, and engineered and managed by the master Danny McGivergan. I'll be back Friday. Uh, we'll be taking your calls as usual. Thank you for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here Friday on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer WDEV.